The Baker Street Readers present The Adventure of the Rygate Squires From the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes By Arthur Conan Doyle. It was some time before the health of my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, recovered from the strain caused by his immense exertions in the spring of 87. The whole question of the Netherlands Sumatra Company and of the colossal schemes of Baron Maupertuis are too recent in the minds of the public and are too intimately concerned with politics and finance to be fitting subjects for this series of sketches. They led, however, in an indirect fashion, to a singular and complex problem which gave my friend an opportunity of demonstrating the value of a fresh weapon among the many with which he waged his lifelong battle against crime. On referring to my notes, I see that it was upon the 14th of April that I received a telegram from Lyon which informed me that Holmes was lying ill in the Hotel de Long. Within twenty-four hours I was in his sick-room, and was relieved to find that there was nothing formidable in his symptoms. Even his iron constitution, however, had broken down under the strain of an investigation which had extended over two months— during which period he had never worked less than fifteen hours a day, and had more than once, as he assured me, kept to his task for five days at a stretch. Even the triumphant issue of his labors could not save him from reaction after so terrible an exertion, and at a time when Europe was ringing with his name, and when his room was literally ankle-deep with congratulatory telegrams, I found him a prey to the blackest depression. Even the knowledge that he had succeeded where the police of three countries had failed, and that he had outmaneuvered at every point the most accomplished swindler in Europe, was insufficient to rouse him from his nervous prostration. Three days later, we were back in Baker Street together, but it was evident that my friend would be much the better for a change, and the thought of a week of springtime in the country was full of attractions to me also. My old friend, Colonel Hayter, who had come under my professional care in Afghanistan, had now taken a house in near Rygate, in Surrey, and had frequently asked me to come down to him upon a visit. On the last occasion, he had remarked that if my friend would only come with me, he would be glad to extend his hospitality to him also. A little diplomacy was needed, but when Holmes understood that the establishment was a bachelor one, and that he would be allowed the fullest freedom— he fell in with my plans, and a week after our return from Lyon, we were under the colonel's roof. Hater was a fine old soldier who had seen much of the world, and he soon found, as I had expected, that Holmes and he had much in common. On the evening of our arrival, we were sitting in the colonel's gun-room after dinner, Holmes stretched upon the sofa, while Hater and I looked over his little armory of firearms. By the way— said he suddenly. I think I'll take one of these pistols upstairs with me in case we have an alarm. An alarm? said I. Yes, we've had a scare in this part lately. 
Old Acton, who is one of our country magnates, had his house broken into last Monday. No great damage done, but the fellows are still at large. No clue? asked Holmes, cocking his eye at the colonel. None as yet, but the affair is a petty one. One of our little country crimes, which must seem too small for your attention, Mr. Holmes, after this great international affair. Holmes waved away the compliment though his smile showed that it had pleased him. Was there any feature of interest? Hmm, I fancy not. The thieves ransacked the library and got very little for their pains. The whole place was turned upside down. Drawers burst open and presses ransacked, <laughs> with the result that an odd volume of Pope's Homer, two plated candlesticks, an ivory letterweight, a small oak barometer, and a ball of twine were all that have vanished. "'What an extraordinary assortment!' I exclaimed. "'Oh, the fellows evidently grabbed hold of everything they could get.' Holmes grunted from the sofa. Well, "'The county police ought to make something of that. Why, it is surely obvious that—' "'But I held up a warning finger. You are here for arrest, my dear fellow. For heaven's sake, don't get started on a new problem when your nerves are all in shreds.' Holmes shrugged his shoulders with a glance of comic resignation towards the colonel— and the talk drifted away into less dangerous channels. It was destined, however, that all my professional caution should be wasted, for next morning the problem obtruded itself upon us in such a way that it was impossible to ignore it, and our country visit took a turn which neither of us could have anticipated. We were at breakfast when the colonel's butler rushed in with all his propriety shaken out of him. Have you heard the news, sir? At the Cunningham, sir? Burglary? cried the colonel, with his coffee cup in midair. Murder! The colonel whistled. By Jove! Who's killed then? The J.P. or his son? Neither, sir. It was William the coachman. Shot through the heart, sir, and never spoke again. Who shot him then? The burglar, sir. He was off like a shot and got clean away. He'd just broke in at the pantry window when William came on him, and he met his end in saving his master's property. What time? It was last night, sir. "'Somewhere about twelve. "'Ah, then we'll step over afterwards,' said the colonel, coolly settling down to his breakfast again. "'It's a baddish business,' he added when the butler had gone. "'He's our leading man around here, is old Cunningham, and a very decent fellow, too. Uh, "'He'll be cut up over this, for the man has been in his service for years and was a good servant. <laughs> "'It's evidently the same—it's evidently the same villains who broke into Acton's.' And store that very singular collection. Precisely. Hmm. It may prove the simplest matter in the world, but all the same, at first glance, it is just a little curious, is it not? A gang of burglars acting in the country might be expected to vary the scene of their operations, and not to crack two cribs in the same district within a few days. When you spoke last night of taking precautions, I remember that it passed through my mind that this was probably the lost parish in England to which a thief or thieves would likely turn their attention, which shows I still have very much to learn. I fancy it's some local practitioner. In that case, of course, Actons and Cunninghams are just the place he would go for, since they are far the largest about here. And... Riches? Well, they ought to be, but they had a lawsuit for some years which has sucked the blood out of both of them, I fancy. Old Acton has some claim on half Cunningham's estate, and the lawyers have been going at it with both hands.
If it's a local villain, there should not be any difficulty in running him Sir down. Sir Holmes with a yawn. All right, Watson, I don't intend to meddle. Inspector Forrester, sir. Said the butler, throwing open the door. The official, a smart, keen-faced young fellow, stepped into the room. Good morning, Colonel. I hope I don't intrude, but we hear that Mr. Holmes of Baker Street is here. The Colonel waved his hand towards my friend, and the inspector bowed. We thought perhaps you would care to step across, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> the fates are against you, Watson. We were just chatting about the matter when you came in, Inspector. Perhaps you can let us have a few details. As he leaned back in his chair in the familiar attitude, I knew that the case was hopeless. We had no clue in the Acton affair, but here we have plenty to go on, and there's no doubt that it is the same party in each case. The man was seen. Ah. Yes, sir. But he was off like a dare after the shot that killed poor William Kerwin was fired. Mr. Cunningham saw him from the bedroom window, and Mr. Alec Cunningham saw him from the back passage. It was a quarter to twelve when the alarm broke out. Mr. Cunningham had just got into bed, and Mr. Alec Cunningham was smoking a pipe in his dressing gown. They both heard William the coachman calling for help, and Mr. Alec ran down to see what was the matter. The back door was open, and as he came to the foot of the stairs, he saw the two men wrestling together outside. One of them fired a shot, the other dropped, and the murderer rushed across the garden and over the hedge. Mr. Cunningham, looking out of his bedroom, saw the fellow as he gained the road, but lost sight of him at once. Mr. Alex stopped to see if he could help the dying man, and so the villain got clean away. Beyond the fact that he was a middle-sized man and dressed in some dark stuff, we have no personal clue. But we are making energetic inquiries, and if he is a stranger, we shall soon find him out. What was this William doing there? Did he say anything before he died? Not a word. He lives at the lodge with his mother, and as he was a very faithful fellow, we imagine he walked up to the house with the intention of seeing that all was right there. Of course, this Hackton business has put everyone on their guard. The robber must have just burst open the door, the lock has been forced, when William came upon him. Did William say anything to his mother before going out? She is very old and deaf, and we can get no information from her. The shock has made her half-witted, but I understand that she was never very bright. There is one very important circumstance, however. Look at this. He took a small piece of torn paper from a notebook and spread it out upon his knee. This was found between the finger and thumb of the dead man. It appears to be a fragment torn from a larger sheet. You will observe that the hour mentioned upon it is the very time which the poor fellow met his fate. You see that the murderer might have torn the rest of the sheet from him, or he might have taken this fragment from the murderer. It reads almost as though it were an appointment. Holmes took up the scrap of paper. It read, At quarter to twelve, learn what? Maybe. Presuming that it is an appointment, it is, of course, a conceivable theory that this William Cohen, though he had the reputation of being an honest man, may have been in league with the thief. He may have met him there, may have even helped him to break open the door, and then they may have fallen out between themselves. This writing is of extraordinary interest, said Holmes, who had been examining it with intense concentration. These are much deeper waters than I had 
thought. He sank his head upon his hands, while the inspector smiled at the effect which his case had had upon the famous London specialist. Your last remark, said Holmes presently, as to the possibility of there being an understanding between the burglar and the servant, and this being a note of appointment from one to the other, is an ingenious and not entirely impossible supposition. But this writing opens up. He sank his head into his hands again, and remained for some minutes in the deepest thought. When he raised his face again, I was surprised to see that his cheek was tinged with colour and his eyes as bright as before his illness. He sprang to his feet with all his old energy. I'll tell you what. I should like to have a quiet little glance into the details of this case. There is something in it which fascinates me extremely. If you'll permit me, Colonel, I will leave my friend Watson and you, and I will step around with the inspector to test one or two little fancies of mine. I will be with you again in half an hour. An hour and a half had elapsed before the inspector returned alone. Mr. Holmes is walking up and down in the field outside. He wants us all four to go up to the house together. To Mr. Cunningham's? Uh, yes, sir. What for? The inspector shrugged his shoulders. I don't quite know, sir. Between ourselves, I think Mr. Holmes is not quite over his illness yet. He's been behaving very queerly, and he is very much excited. I don't think you need alarm yourself, said I. I have usually found that there was method in his madness. Some folks might say there was madness in his method. But he's all on fire to start, Colonel, so we'd best go out when you're ready. We found Holmes pacing up and down in the field, his chin sunk upon his breast, and his hands thrust into his trousers' pockets. The matter grows in interest. Watson, your country trip has been a distinct success. I have had a charming morning. You have been up to the scene of the crime, I understand, said the colonel. Yes, the inspector and I have made quite a little reconnaissance together. Any success? Well, we have seen some very interesting things. I'll tell you what we did as we walk. First of all, we saw the body of this unfortunate man. He certainly died from a revolver wound as reported. Had you doubted it, then? It is as well to test everything. Our inspection was not wasted. We then had an interview with Mr. Cunningham and his son, who were able to point out the exact spot where the murderer had broken through the garden hedge in his flight. That was of great interest. Naturally. Then we had a look at this poor fellow's mother. We could get no information from her, however, as she is very old and feeble. And what is the result of your investigations? The conviction that the crime is a very peculiar one. Perhaps our visit now may do something to make it less obscure. I think that we are both agreed, Inspector, that the fragment of paper in the dead man's hand, bearing as it does the very hour of his death written upon it, is of extreme importance. It should give a clue, Mr. Holmes. It does give a clue. Whoever wrote that note was the man who brought William Cohen out of his bed at that hour. But where is the rest of that sheet of paper? I examined the ground carefully in hope of finding it. It was torn out of the dead man's hand. Why was someone so anxious to get possession of it? Because it incriminated him. And what would he do with it? 
thrust it into his pocket, most likely never noticing that a corner of it had been left in the grip of the corpse. If we could get the rest of that sheet, it is obvious that we should have gone a long way towards solving the mystery. Yes, but how can we get at the criminal's pocket before we catch the criminal? Well, well, it was worth thinking over. Then there is another obvious point. The note was sent to William. The man who wrote it could not have taken it. Otherwise, of course, he might have delivered his own message by word of mouth. Who brought the note, then? Or did it come through the post? I have made inquiries. William received a letter by the afternoon post yesterday. The envelope was destroyed by him. Excellent, cried Holmes, clapping the inspector on the back. You've seen the postman. It is a pleasure to work with you. Well, here is the lodge. If you will come up, Colonel, I will show you the scene of the crime. We passed the pretty cottage where the murdered man had lived and walked up an oak-lined avenue to the fine old Queen Anne house, which bears the date of Malplaquet upon the lintel of the door. Holmes and the inspector led us round until we came to the side gate, which is separated by a stretch of garden from the hedge which lines the road. A constable was standing at the kitchen door. Throw the door open, officer. Now, it was on those stairs that young Mr. Cunningham stood and saw the two men struggling just where we are. Old Mr. Cunningham was at that window, the second on the left, and he saw the fellow get away just to the left of that bush. Then Mr. Alec ran out and knelt beside the wounded man. The ground is very hard, you see, and there are no marks to guide us. As he spoke, two men came down the garden path from round the angle of the house. The one was an elderly man with a strong, deep-lined, heavy-eyed face. The other a dashing young fellow whose bright, smiling expression and showy dress were in strange contrast with the business which had brought us there. Still art it, then? said he to Holmes. I thought you Londoners were never at fault. You don't seem to be so very quick after all. Oh, you must give us a little time. <laughs> You'll want it. Why, I don't see that we have any clue at all. There's only one, answered the inspector. We thought that if we could only find... Good heaven, Mr. Holmes, what is the matter? My poor friend's face had suddenly assumed the most dreadful expression. His eyes rolled upwards, his features writhed in agony, and with a suppressed groan he dropped on his face upon the ground. Horrified at the suddenness and severity of the attack, we carried him into the kitchen, where he lay back in a large chair and breathed heavily for some minutes. Finally, with a shame-faced apology for his weakness, he rose once more. Watson would tell you that I have only just recovered from a severe illness— I am liable to these sudden nervous attacks. Shall I send you home in my trap? asked old Cunningham. Well, since I am here, there is one point on which I should like to feel sure. We can very easily verify it. What was it? Well, it seems to me that it is just possible that the arrival of this poor fellow William was not before but after the entrance of the burglar into the house— you appear to take it for granted that, although the door was forced, the robber never got in. I, I fancy that is quite obvious. Why, my son Alec had not yet gone to bed, and he would certainly have heard anyone moving about. Where was he sitting? I was smoking in my dressing-room. Which window is that? 
The last on the left, next my father's. Both of your lamps were lit, of course? Undoubtedly. There are some very singular points here, said Holmes, smiling. Is it not extraordinary that a burglar, and a burglar who had had some previous experience, should deliberately break into a house at a time when he could see from the lights that two of the family were still afoot? He must have been a cool hand. Well, of course. If the case were not an odd one, we should not have been driven to ask you for an explanation, said young Mr. Alec. But as to your ideas that the man had robbed the house before William tackled him, I think it the most absurd notion. Wouldn't we have found the place disarranged and missed the things that had been taken? It depends on what the things were. You must remember that we are dealing with a burglar who is a very peculiar fellow and who appears to work on lines of his own. Look, for example, at the queer lot of things which he took from Acton's. What was it? A ball of string? A letterweight? And I don't know what other odds and ends. Well, we are quite in your hands, Mr. Holmes, said old Cunningham. Anything which you or the inspector may suggest will most certainly be done. In the first place, I should like you to offer a reward, coming from yourself, for the officials may take a little time before they would agree upon a sum, and these things cannot be done too promptly. I have jotted down the form here, if you would not mind signing it. Fifty pounds was quite enough, I thought. I would willingly give five hundred, said the J.P., taking the slip of paper and the pencil which Holmes handed to him. This is not quite correct, however, he added, glancing over the document. I wrote it rather hurriedly. You see, you begin, whereas at about a quarter to one on Tuesday morning an attempt was made, and so on, it was at a quarter to twelve, as a matter of fact. I was pained at the mistake, for I knew how keenly Holmes would feel any slip of the kind. It was his specialty to be accurate as to fact, but his recent illness had shaken him, and this one little incident was enough to show me that he was still far from being himself. He was obviously embarrassed for an instant, while the inspector raised his eyebrows, and Alec Cunningham burst into a laugh. The old gentleman corrected the mistake, however, and handed the paper back to Holmes. "'Get it printed as soon as possible!' I think your idea is an excellent one. Holmes put the slip of paper carefully away into his pocketbook. And now it really would be a good thing that we should all go over the house together and make certain that this erratic burglar did not, after all, carry anything away with him. Before entering, Holmes made an examination of the door which had been forced. It was evident that a chisel or strong knife had been thrust in and the lock forced back with it. We could see the marks in the wood where it had been pushed in. You don't use bars, then? We have never found it necessary. You don't keep a dog? Yes, but he is chained on the other side of the house. When do the servants go to bed? About ten. I understand that William was usually in bed also at that hour? Yes. It is singular that on this particular night he should have been up. Now, I should be very glad if you would have the kindness to show us over the house, Mr. Cunningham. A stone-flagged passage, with the kitchens branching away from it, led by a wooden staircase directly to the first floor of the house. 
It came out upon the landing, opposite to a second more ornamental stair, which came up from the front hall. Out of this landing opened the drawing-room and several bedrooms, including those of Mr. Cunningham and his son. Holmes walked slowly, taking keen note of the architecture of the house. I could tell from his expression that he was on a hot scent, and yet I could not in the least imagine in which direction his inferences were taking him. "'My good sir,' said Mr. Cunningham with some impatience, "'this is surely very unnecessary. "'This is my room at the end of the stairs, "'and my son's is the one beyond it. "'I leave it to your judgment "'whether it was possible for the thief "'to have come up here without disturbing us.' "'You must try round and get on a fresh scent, I fancy,' "'said the son with a rather malicious smile.' Still, I must ask you to humour me a little further. I should like, for example, to see how far the windows of the bedrooms command the front. This, I understand, is your son's room? He pushed open the door. And that, I presume, is the dressing-room in which he sat smoking when the alarm was given. Where does that window look out to? He stepped across the bedroom, pushed open the door, and glanced round the other chamber. I hope you are satisfied now. Thank you. I think I have seen all that I wish. Then if it is really necessary, we can go into my room. If it is not too much trouble. The J.P. shrugged his shoulders and led the way into his own chamber, which was a plainly furnished and commonplace room. As we moved across it in the direction of the window, Holmes fell back until he and I were the last of the group. Near the foot of the bed stood a dish of oranges and a carafe of water. Holmes, to my unutterable astonishment, leaned over in front of me and deliberately knocked the whole thing over. The glass smashed into a thousand pieces, and the fruit rolled about into every corner of the room. You've done it now, Watson. A pretty mess you've made of the carpet. I stooped in some confusion and began to pick up the fruit. "'Understanding for some reason, my companion desired me to take the blame upon myself. "'The others did the same and set the table on its legs again. Hello! cried the inspector. "'Where's he got to?' "'Holmes had disappeared.' "'Wait here an instant. The fellow was off his head, in my opinion. "'Come with me, father, and see where he has got to.' "'Come and rushed out of the room, leaving the inspector, the colonel, and me staring at each other. "'On my word!' "'I'm inclined to agree with Master Alec, said the official. "'It may be an effect of this illness, but it seems to me that—' "'His words were cut short by a sudden scream of, "'Help! Help! Murder!' "'With a thrill, I recognized the voice of that of my friend. "'I rushed madly from the room onto the landing. "'The cries, which had sunk down into a hoarse, inarticulate shouting, "'came from the room which we had first visited. "'I dashed in and on into the dressing-room beyond.' The two Cunninghams were bending over the prostrate figure of Sherlock Holmes, the younger clutching at his throat with both hands, while the elder seemed to be twisting one of his wrists. In an instant the three of us had torn them away from him, and Holmes staggered to his feet, very pale and evidently greatly exhausted. "'Arrest these men, Inspector!' he gasped. "'On what charge?' That of murdering their coachman, William Kerwin. The inspector stared about him in bewilderment. Oh, come now, Mr. Holmes, said I'm he at last. I'm sure you don't really mean to... Tut, man, look at their faces. Never certainly have I seen a plainer confession of guilt upon human countenances. The older man seemed numbed and dazed, with a heavy, sullen expression upon his strongly marked face. 
The son, on the other hand, had dropped all that jaunty, dashing style which had characterized him, and the ferocity of a dangerous wild beast gleamed in his dark eyes and distorted his handsome features. The inspector said nothing, but stepping to the door, he blew his whistle. Two of his constables came at the call. I have no alternative, Mr. Cunningham. I trust that this may all prove to be an absurd mistake, but you can see that... Ha! Would you? Drop it! He struck out with his hand, and a revolver which the younger man was in the act of cocking clattered down upon the floor. Keep that, said Holmes, quietly putting his foot upon it. You will find it useful at the trial, but this is what we really wanted. He held up a little crumpled piece of paper. The remainder of the sheet, cried the inspector. Precisely. And where was it? Where I was sure it must be. I'll make the whole matter clear to you presently. I think, Colonel, that you and Watson might return now. I will be with you again in an hour at the furthest. The inspector and I must have a word with the prisoners, but you will certainly see me back at luncheon time. Sherlock Holmes was as good as his word. For about one o'clock he rejoined us in the Colonel's smoking-room. He was accompanied by a little elderly gentleman, who was introduced to me as the Mr. Acton, whose house had been the scene of the original burglary. I wished Mr. Acton to be present while I demonstrate this small matter to you, for it is natural that he should take a keen interest in the details. I am afraid, my dear Colonel, that you must regret the hour you took in such a stormy petrol as I am. On the contrary, I consider it the greatest privilege to have been permitted to study your methods of working. I confess that they quite surpass my expectations, and that I am utterly unable to account for your result. I have not yet seen the vestige of a clue. I'm afraid that any explanation may disillusion you, but it has always been my habit to hide none of my methods, either from my friend Watson or from anyone who might take an intelligent interest in them. But first, as I am rather shaken by the knocking about which I had in your dressing-room, I think I shall help myself to a dash of your brandy, Colonel. My strength has been rather tried of late. I trust that you've had no more of these nervous attacks. Sherlock Holmes laughed heartily. <laughs> we will come to that in its turn. I will lay an account of the case before you in its due order, showing you the various points which guided me in my decision. Pray interrupt me if there is any inference which is not perfectly clear to you. It is of the highest importance in the art of deduction to be able to recognize out of a number of facts which are incidental and which vital. Otherwise your energy and attention must be dissipated instead of being concentrated. Now, in this case, there was not the slightest doubt in my mind from the first that the key of the whole matter must be looked for in the scrap of paper in the dead man's hand. Before going into this, I would draw your attention to the fact that if Alec Cunningham's narrative was correct, and if the assailant, after shooting William Cohen, had instantly fled, then it obviously could not be he who tore the paper from the dead man's hand. But if it was not he, it must have been Alec Cunningham himself, for by the time the old man had descended, several servants were upon the scene. The point is a simple one, but the inspector had overlooked it. 
because he had started with the supposition that these county magnates had had nothing to do with the matter. Now, I make a point of never having any prejudices, and following docilely wherever fact may lead me, and so in the very first stage of the investigation I found myself looking a little askance at the part which had been played by Mr. Alec Cunningham. And now I made a very careful examination of the corner of paper which the inspector had submitted to us. It was at once clear to me that it formed part of a very remarkable document. Here it is. Do you not now observe something very suggestive about it? It has a very irregular look. My dear sir, there cannot be the least doubt in the world that it has been written by two persons doing alternate words. When I draw your attention to the strong T's of at and to, and ask you to compare them with the weak ones of quarter and twelve, you will instantly recognize the fact. A very brief analysis of these four words would enable you to say with the utmost confidence that the learn and maybe were written in the stronger hand and the what in the weaker. By Jove! It's clear as day! Why on earth should two men write a letter in such a fashion? Obviously the business was a bad one, and one of the men who distrusted the other was determined that whatever was done each should have an equal hand in it. Now, of the two men, it is clear that the one who wrote at and to was the ringleader. How do you get at that? We might deduce it from the mere character of the one hand as compared with the other, but we have more assured reasons than that for supposing it. If you examine this scrap with attention, you will come to the conclusion that the man with the stronger hand wrote all his words first, leaving blanks for the other to fill up. These blanks were not always sufficient, and you can see that the second man had a squeeze to fit his quarter in between at and to, showing that the latter were already written. The man who wrote all his words first is undoubtedly the man who planned the affair. Excellent! cried Mr. Acton. But very superficial. We come now, however, to a point which is of importance. You may not be aware that the deduction of a man's age from his writing is one which has been brought to considerable accuracy by experts. In normal cases, one can place a man in his true decade with tolerable confidence. I say normal cases because ill health and physical weakness reproduce the signs of old age even when the invalid is a youth. In this case, looking at the bold, strong hand of the one, and the rather broken-backed appearance of the other, which still retains its legibility, although the T's have begun to lose their crossing, we may say that the one was a young man, or the other was advanced in years, without being positively decrepit. Excellent! cried Mr. Acton again. There is a further point, however, which is subtler and of greater interest. There is something in common between these hands. They belong to men who are blood relatives. It may be most obvious to you in the Greek ease, but to me there are many small points which indicate the same thing. I have no doubt at all that a family mannerism can be traced in these two specimens of writing. I am, of course, giving you the leading results now of my examination of the paper. There were twenty-three other deductions which would be more of interest to experts than to you. 
they all tend to deepen the impression upon my mind that the cunning hands, father and son, had written this letter. Having got so far, my next step was, of course, to examine into the details of the crime and see how far they would help us. I went up to the house with the inspector and saw all that was to be seen. The wound upon the dead man was, as I was able to determine with absolute confidence, fired from a revolver at a distance of something over four yards. There was no powder blackening on the clothes. Evidently, therefore, Alec Cunningham had lied when he said that the two men were struggling when the shots were fired. Again, both father and son agree as to the place where the man escaped into the road. At that point, however, as it happens, there is a broadish ditch moist at the bottom. As there are no indications of boot marks about this ditch, I was absolutely sure not only that the Cunninghams had lied again, but that there had never been any unknown man upon the scene at all. And now I have to consider the motive of this singular crime. To get at this, I endeavoured first of all to solve the reason of the original burglary at Mr. Acton's. I understood from something which the Colonel told us that a lawsuit had been going on between you, Mr. Acton, and the Cunninghams. Of course, it instantly occurred to me that they had broken into your library with the intention of getting at some document which might be of importance in the case. Precisely so. There can be no possible doubt as to their intentions. I have the clearest claim upon half of their present estate, and if they could have found a single paper, which fortunately was in the strong box of my solicitors, they would undoubtedly have crippled our case. There you are. It was a dangerous, reckless attempt in which I seemed to trace the influence of young Alec. Having found nothing, they tried to divert suspicion by making it appear to be an ordinary burglary, to which end they carried off whatever they could lay their hands upon. That was all clear enough, but there was much that was still obscure. What I wanted above all was to get the missing part of that note— I was certain that Alec had torn it out of the dead man's hand, and almost certain that he must have thrust it into the pocket of his dressing-gown. Where else could he have put it? The only question was whether it was still there. It was worth an effort to find out, and for that object we all went up to the house. The Cunninghams joined us, as you doubtless remember, outside the kitchen door. It was, of course, of the very first importance that they should not be reminded of the existence of this paper, otherwise they would naturally destroy it without delay. The inspector was about to tell them the importance which we had attached to it when, by the luckiest chance in the world, I tumbled down in a sort of fit and so changed the conversation. <laughs> Heavens! Do you mean to say all our sympathy was wasted in your fit and imposture? Speaking professionally, it was admirably done, cried I, looking in amazement at this man who was forever confounding me with some new phase of his astuteness. It is an art which is often useful. When I recovered, I managed, by a device which had perhaps some little merit of ingenuity, to get old Cunningham to write the word twelve 
so I might compare it with the twelve upon the paper. Oh, what an ass I have been, I exclaimed. <laughs> I could see that you were commiserating with me over my weakness. I was sorry to cause you the sympathetic pain which I know you felt. We then went upstairs together, and having entered the room and seen the dressing-gown hanging behind the door, I contrived, by upsetting a table, to engage their attention for the moment, and slipped back to examine the pockets. I had hardly got the paper, however, which was, as I had expected, in one of them, when the two Cunninghams were on me, and would, I verily believe, have murdered me then and there, but for your prompt and friendly aid. As it is, I feel the young man's grip on my throat now, and the father has twisted my wrist around in an effort to get the paper out of my hand. They saw that I must know all about it, you see, and the sudden change from absolute security to complete despair made them perfectly desperate. I had a little talk with old Cunningham afterwards as to the motive of the crime. He was tractable enough, though his son was a perfect demon, ready to blow out his own or anyone else's brains if he could have got his hand on his revolver. When Cunningham saw the case against him was so strong, he lost all heart and made a clean breast of everything. It seems that William had secretly followed his two masters on the night when they made their raid upon Mr. Acton's and thus, having got them into his power, proceeded, under threats of exposure, to levy blackmail upon them. Mr. Alec, however, was a dangerous man to play games of that sort with. It was a stroke of positive genius on his part to see in the burglary scare which was convulsing the countryside an opportunity of plausibly getting rid of the man whom he feared. William was decoyed up and shot and had they only got the whole of the note and paid a little more attention to detail in the accessories, it is very possible that suspicion might never have been aroused. And the note, I asked, Sherlock Holmes placed the subjoined paper before us. If you will only come round at quarter to twelve to the east gate, you will learn what will very much surprise you and maybe be of the greatest service to you and also to Annie Morrison, but say nothing to anyone upon the matter. It is very much the sort of thing I had expected. Of course, we do not know yet what the relationships may have been between Alec Cunningham, William Kerwin, and Annie Morrison. The results show that the trap was skilfully baited. I am sure that you cannot fail to be delighted with the traces of heredity shown in the P's and in the tales of the G's. The absence of the eye-dots in the old man's writing is also most characteristic. Watson, I think our quiet rest in the country has been a distinct success, and I shall certainly return much invigorated to Baker Street tomorrow. The Adventure of the Rygate Squires by Arthur Conan Doyle With James Gelter as Sherlock Holmes Inspector Forrester, Mr. Acton, and the butler Tony Grobe as Dr. Watson and Old Cunningham Featuring Anders Burroughs as Colonel Hayter and Alec Cunningham 
Baker Street theme performed by Jonathan Kinnersley. Produced by James Gelter, Tony Grobe, and Kirby Landers. Directed by James Gelter. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to After the Read. Uh, which one is this? <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Reset. All right, take, uh, take two. Uh. <laughs> and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to After the Read, Rygate Squires edition. I am your co-host, Jay Gelter. I am your co-host, Tony Grobe. And joining us is our guest star from this episode, Mr. Anders Burrows. That's me. Hello, everyone. Hello. And we are here to talk Rygate Squires. But first, mm. as always, a couple pieces of business. Mm. Thank you to all of our subscribed patrons. All right. uh, especially thank you to those who are detective-level patrons. Anna Behrens, Don Grobe, Donna Harlow, and Holly Kennedy. An extra thank you to you. If you would like a shout-out in an episode, just bump yourself up to the detective level of patron. And uh, people get to know, like, oh, you're an extra special, amazing person every episode. <laughs> um, and, of course, if you're enjoying listening to this podcast, please share us on social media, on whichever social medias are your preference. Uh, tell people that, hey, this is fun. I'm enjoying it. You should enjoy it, too. And make sure you put a link to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Readers. And then we will start with our, I guess we'll call it our mailbag segment. Mm. Uh, we, uh, we asked people to Is it email an actual bag? <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> email bag. We asked, we asked listeners to email us some of their thoughts, and it has happened. Tony, you remember in our last episode, we were talking the case of the cardboard box Mm -hmm. And we were asking, is there another home story in which an affair plays into the main plot, is a main plot point? Indeed. Neither we of us could think, think of one at the time. We could not. Luckily, one of our listeners, Anna Behrens, has emailed us to remind us that the problem of Thor Bridge revolves completely around an affair. It does indeed. Thank yes. you for the reminder. Yes, the, the wife commits suicide, but she makes it look like the governess had murdered her. Mm -hmm. hmm. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert, by spoiler the way, alert. those of you who are listening. <laughs> we're, not doing, we're not really worried about spoilers for these stories that have been around for <laughs> well over 100 years. <laughs> there you go. I, I feel like there's a, a statute of limitations on spoiler alerts. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, but uh, that, that story is from the case book of Sherlock Holmes, which I admit is the collection that I am the least familiar with. I've read mm. it through, but I'm not super familiar with it, which is why that one didn't pop into my, my head. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Anna. She also pointed out something about Cardboard Box, which I forgot to mention in our last episode and in our very long discussion about Henry Ward Beecher. Mm -hmm. I forgot to mention, as Anna pointed out, that another thing was that Beecher was also notorious for having an affair. And as ah. that was a story about an affair, there was this thematic thing that Conan Doyle was doing. 
And Anders knows exactly what we're talking about, right, Anders? <laughs> uh, yeah. Read cardboard box, Anders. It's a good one. <laughs> well, I've read them all. It's just been a while since I've read most of them. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Anders, when did you first discover Sherlock Holmes or start reading Sherlock Holmes? Um, I mean, I've known about him forever, obviously, but when I actually sat down with like a full mega thick volume of all of the works was when I was traveling around Europe in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was like kind of my like my train read to to go to for that. So I, I read through all of them in a relatively short period of time and really just like marathoned right through them. So you know, a lot of them kind of blur together and and whatnot. But yeah, I, I was kind of have something fun to think about like that while you're sitting on a train for six hours. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of the same way in high school. I, I, I got one of those big, thick collections of it and it was just like read the whole thing through in like a marathon of you know a week or so and yeah but traveling with a book that heavy that's not wise <laughs> yeah it worked out okay I mean, it was like the only book i had with me that's true <laughs> <laughs> you know it was like one of those things you could just like there were the hostels where you could just like put a book on the shelf and take a book kind of a thing oh yeah um, oh, cool i think that one maybe i maybe even found on one of those and then dropped off somewhere else i i don't really it was it was a while ago Cool. Mm-hmm. So we did get a listener to email us in some comments. We didn't get any emailed questions this week. Mm. So this allows us to turn to you, Anders, and say, Anders, you could ask Tony and I any Baker Street readers related question, either about the podcast, about our process, about just Sherlock Holmes itself. No pressure. Really me just on make the it a spot good one. Here. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, maybe maybe it's an easy one, but how do you determine which one you're going to do and when? Oh, we'd love to answer that question, but that was our question for last week's episode. Oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't listen to last week's episode. It's <laughs> all right. Oh, for shame. <laughs> uh okay what's your process for determining how many uh actors you will need and who to pick then oh that is a good one thank you it's been different since we've moved to the podcast mode because we're doing this in quarantine settings we are restricting the number of people involved in each episode when we did the live shows it was kind of a more the merrier sort of thing but we're really trying to restrict it to no having no more than you know, two or three guest stars max. This one is the first one that we've done with only three people. That's because it was just, they were all male characters. There weren't that many of them. It was like, oh. So basically we're going to, who's the least of, what is the fewest number of people that we feel confident to do it in? And then we go for it that way. How we select them is pretty much, we're going through regulars who did the live shows with us. Anders, for people who don't know, has done a couple of our live shows with us in the past. Um, oh. And uh, awesome. so, yeah, it, it's basically like, okay, obviously we know who's going to play Holmes and Watson. <laughs> Maybe it would make sense since this one isn't one that Watson talks a lot, that Tony takes another part or mm-hmm. Holmes doesn't talk as much. So home, So I take another part. And then we look at like, how many other people can we get? And basically what we try to avoid is situations where people talk to themselves for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. that was kind of unavoidable in this episode. Like there's at one point where I'm playing both Holmes and the inspector and have like two minutes of a back and forth dialogue with myself. <laughs> <laughs> it really takes well, talking to yourself to, to a whole to new level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, of course uh, we record. So yeah, I was just gonna say that- 
you recorded those parts separately then? Yeah, yeah, just just like we recorded uh, your two characters as separate recording sessions. For the listeners at home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a leading question. Yes. Behind the scenes. <laughs> yes, I'll do all the homes first and then go back and do my other characters because it's really hard to jump back and forth between two. Yeah. Um, to keep the voice consistent and the accent consistent, it's just it's a lot easier to just do keep your mouth in one position to do the one mouth voice and brain and, then, and everything. Yeah, yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Switching and gears then, like that on the fly is is incredibly difficult to do. Right, and since we're editing, everybody's recording their parts separately, and then it's getting edited together afterwards. It 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 doesn't make any difference recording it that way. Either the the editing process remains the same. Yeah. Well. Thank you, Anders, for your question of the week. <laughs> All right, but let us now talk Rygate Squires. Or is oh, it Rygate Squire? <laughs> or is it the Rygate Puzzles? Yeah. Um, all, all three titles are technically correct. Is it like based on what version of the collections it was sent out with? Or? Right, yeah. When it was first published in the Strand magazine in June 1893, it was just the adventure of the Rygate Squire, one singular squire. Hmm. When it was then published in the collection, the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes in England, they put an S on it, the Rygate Squires, because there's the squire and his son, so I guess they figured it makes more sense to have... Yeah. Sure. Have it be both. But when it was published in America, it was published under the title The Rygate Puzzle. I guess because Americans. What's a squire? Yeah, (laughs) I guess because Americans didn't know what squires were. (laughs) Fair, I suppose. Or somebody was just like, oh, Rygate Squire is a dumb title. Let's make it a puzzle. People like puzzles. People like puzzles. (laughs) Sherlock's great at solving puzzles. Yeah. (laughs) What the heck's a squire? (laughs) What's a a squeer? So it gets published under all three titles. Rygate Puzzle doesn't get used that often, but we went with Squires because that's the title it was given when it was published in the collection and we're basing this off of the collection. So Mm -hmm. that's what we went with. It does, Tony, mention a unknown adventure. It does. We forgot to point this out in our last episode. We want to make a point in future episodes to always (laughs) point out Watson describes the question of the Netherland Sumatra Company. Yes, the, with like details about it even. Yeah, the colossal schemes of Baron Maupertuis. Mm. And it's one of those Saucy adventures fella. that they never actually wrote, huh? Yeah, yeah. Watson specifically says, maybe I'll write about that another time. And then he never did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's I too, assure you. But I too political you, for these oh, yeah. sketches. Mm. <laughs> but I assure you, some like a number of fans have written their own stories about that case many oh, times. Sure. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> and I'm sure some of them are good. <laughs> Baron Maupertuis sounds like a great villain. Yes, it's a mustache twirling going on there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, my, hope, my hope is that it ended with him and, him and Holmes in, a, in like a fencing bout. Ooh, that would be exciting. Yes. That never happens. It's mentioned in early stories that Sherlock Holmes is an excellent fencer as well as a boxer. There are times where he throws a punch in these stories, but 
he never in none of the cases Conan Doyle wrote does he ever pull out a sword and do something cool with a sword mm, yeah. yeah it's like why would you add that detail in and then not yeah, not the having bucks, not having fence. You know, yeah. Fencing fencing matches, I suppose, could be hard to describe in in newsprint. Oh, come on, you ever maybe you ever read a, a Dumas story? Oh yeah. You can yeah. you can write cool stuff about sword bat fights. Thrusting the point home, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's like it's like Thrusting in a the mo- point homes. It's like in a movie, it's like in it's like in the fourth Indiana Jones movie when the character casually mentions, Oh yeah, I'm pretty good with a sword. It's like, well then you're gonna use a sword by the end of this movie. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Pointless Don't to bring show it up. The gun if it's not gonna get fired. <laughs> yeah, like uh I, Conan Doyle, you we're gonna have words about this later. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Seance just to be like what about the fencing? Oh man, if heaven's real and Conan Doyle is up there, how many people have walked up to him and been like, okay, explain this. <laughs> what about this loophole? Like, shut up! <laughs> and he's yeah. like, they were stories of the month. I didn't care that much. Mm-hmm. You I'm figure sure, it uh, out. He's, he's, he's probably here. got uh, people hanging around him who are just like, I got this. <laughs> yeah. Although, they yeah, were just things. He would say, there were stories of the month. <laughs> You've ever listened to a recording of his voice? He spoke with a very thick Scottish accent. Oh, I love I didn't it. I know that. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tony, you're, let's start with you, Tony. Tony, your okay. thoughts on, on the Raggate Squires. Well, I quite enjoyed this one. You know, it's, it's quite fast-paced. It's got, uh, you know, changes of scene here, there, and everywhere. There's plenty of Holmes and Watson kind of poking at each other as roommates would at the beginning. Yeah, when recording this one, we kind of talked about this one is a really nice piece of development for the Holmes and Watson relationship. Yeah. Because we see the rare Watson getting frustrated with Holmes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, because he cares about his like well-being. Yeah. And because Holmes clearly doesn't listen to him when he gives him <laughs> advice. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, but there's there's also the whole there's the whole bit about knocking the fruit over and blaming it on Watson. Oh my God, yes, yeah. that's priceless. <laughs> yeah, that that is an example of two people who are really simpatico. When it's like I knock over these oranges and look at you like, what did you do? And you're you know to be like, Boom, I'm sorry way. that I knocked these. Yes, oranges. Right. <laughs> jeez, that, I don't that know was, what came over me. My it's fault. like it wasn't what? even me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then you disappear from the room. <laughs> and of course, you know, we all keep a, a just a big bowl of oranges in the entryway of our bedrooms. Oh, of course. You know, bowl of oranges, carafe of water. What could be more natural? <laughs> Every room in the house. I mean, I guess a carafe of water makes more sense. But I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah, having a snack in your room, I guess, is nice. But who, like, oranges only last for so long. Like having a whole bowl of oranges in your room. How much is this guy eating oranges? <laughs> It's a good question. It's a great way to ward off scurvy, I suppose. But still, no scurvy in that hole. Overkill. (laughs) Maybe, maybe for him, oranges are like you know when you got the like little bowl of tootsie rolls in your house or whatever. You're like, ah, crap! I'm gonna eat all of these today. (laughs) (laughs) He just sits up there smoking his pipe, eating his oranges, and plotting the murder of his neighbors. Yes. (laughs) Although one peel at a time. He he was plotting the robbery of his neighbors. That's true. It was 
his own like groomsmen that he was murdering, right? That's true. That's true. I'm sure he would have ended up murdering. Well, that was even sort of almost sort of out of self-defense too, right? Because he was oh, yeah. being, he was being extorted and they were like, Oh, we gotta well here kill him and mm-hmm. self-preservation, not necessarily self-defense. Right. That's a better way to put it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh so uh Anders, how did you enjoy playing the Colonel? Oh, the Colonel was a blast to play. Um <laughs> you know, any chance you get to to do that voice and everyone knows what that voice is there's no question i'm the colonel i'm the colonel exactly uh so that i mean that was a that was a blast uh getting to genuinely say by jove not just once but twice uh was pretty awesome yeah it was was a lot of fun i just enjoy the colonel i I wish he appeared in more stories because i like this this colonel who is just along for the ride yeah -hmm. it's funny that he's there for an entire scene and doesn't say a single thing. And then it's referenced at the end of the scene again, just so you know, he was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just soaking it all in. This is wonderful. I have no oh, stake in this. Fantastic. <laughs> I, mean, I guess for him, it's kind of like binge watching Netflix, right? I mean, it's yeah. like he gets yeah. to, yeah, yeah he's, this is he, his entertainment. Yeah. He's simultaneously highly interested and also has no stakes and, in it whatsoever like he doesn't actually care right. like the butler runs in and says this man was murdered he's like oh that's that's cool <laughs> let's talk that <laughs> yeah. through <laughs> yeah well we'll oh, go down who, we'll go over was? after breakfast yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> let's not rush into <laughs> it <anything. laughs> more importantly i'm hungry yeah <laughs> like could you imagine like if you if you watch like you watch like an episode of law and order or like bones or something you know one of these shows and they run and be like, we found a body. And people are like, okay, let me just finish this. Yeah. <laughs> let me just finish my, 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 my bagel. Yeah, <laughs> and then just just right sitting down that. here. Uh, we'll, we'll get right on that. <laughs> I mean, Lunch. it's not like he's going anywhere. Yeah. I mean, especially because like, yeah. I mean, especially because like the butler is like real broken. at like freaking out about this. Yeah. <laughs> he rushes mm-hmm. in. He's like, Mike, mur-! he shouts murder. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. terribly more british though yeah. yes terribly british though just to like oh really sips tea you know <laughs> and these were not the the brightest of the villains in any of these stories that we've come across also i mean like they they reacted very rashly but then they didn't take really any steps at all to cover themselves i mean like mm-hmm. They said, yeah. oh, they ran through the through, through the bushes over there, but like they didn't take the time to like have one of them run through to leave some footprints to make it more convincing. Or right. well, I don't know, throw away that scrap of paper that basically admits that that's like, the bi- burn it. That's the biggest that's the biggest plot hole of the story is Holmes is like everything pins upon our hope that they forgot the paper exists. And it's like, what? And he's scheming all this stuff under the assumption that they forgot the existence of the paper, which incriminates them directly. Yeah. But, you know, it paid off. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they clearly were not very bright. Yeah. Like, well, we got away with it. All right. Yeah. Oh, the police are sniffing around? That's fine. What can they find? Right. Well, yeah. at, at least the, I mean, at least the like, oh, they should have, put some footsteps in the bottom of the ravine or whatever at least that can be kind of explained away with like well there was never there hasn't been anybody who's investigated crimes like sherlock holmes before so they didn't think that that's something the police would look into because 
this new deduction system that Holmes has created is not is not common yet. Right. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. It's also right. no law and order then, so they don't know that they're supposed to be looking for these things. Mm. Right. <laughs> there's no. There's no. Uh, there's no CSI. Mm-hmm. Which, if there were a CSI, that'd be great because I would. I would love to see. Uh, I'd love to see Holmes and Watson on a boat, you know, going down the Thames at top speed to, you know, some rock and electric guitar music. <laughs> <laughs> see Holmes. Yeah, see Holmes take off his sunglasses as he delivers the final quip of the mystery, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, let's see. What 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 would be what would be Holmes's pun about the guy who got who got murdered with a little with a little note in his hand that <laughs> take the sunglasses off. Oh. Didn't stand a scrap of a chance. Was... Oh, oh, yeah, but you got you got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you got you got you got mind taking the glasses off. People right. will be able to hear it. You didn't have a scrap, a scrap of, of a chance. chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe not the best. We'll workshop. Right, we, can, we can come up with a better one. Yeah, I'll talk to Conan Doyle about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so listeners, I have here the annotated Sherlock Holmes by, uh, well, what's his name? <laughs> I mean, we are do a second so good at this, folks. I mean, Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle obviously wrote the stories, but the editor and the, the notes writer is William Barring Gould. I'll, I will admit, you know, may, no offense to anyone, it's not my favorite annotated one because his chronology is really bizarre a lot of his notes are like most people say this is how the chronology works but i'm the only one who says it works this way it's like well I, that that's not helpful um all right three uh okay so but i was specifically looking up here we go here we go this is totally going to be worth it ah so a Holmesian scholar mr john ball jr wrote about the fact that Holmes says that the scrap of paper where he with the strange handwriting near the end of the story, mm-hmm. he says that there are 23 other deductions that he made off of this piece of paper. Yes. That he won't mm-hmm. mention here. Yeah, that's uh-huh. right. Somebody yeah. took the time to figure out what all 23 of those deductions because of might course be. they did. God. <laughs> so one, the quality of the paper. Mm-hmm. Whether it was costly, average, or cheap. Two, the rag content of the paper. I don't know what that means. That's, mm. I guess, some the, paper the makeup of it. I guess, like rather yeah. not like what, like, but it, yeah, I don't know. The thickness of the fibers, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, like, or even like what the fibers were, perhaps, like the method. Right. I don't know. The mm. probable source of the paper, what country of origin it might be from. Four, the quality of the ink. Five, the chemical nature of the ink. That kind of, I guess. You're getting a little bit repetitive there. <laughs> Six, the probable source of the ink. <laughs> Seven, the age of the writing. Eight, the presence or absence of folds in the paper. Nine, whether the fragment had been torn from the whole or the whole torn from the fat brick. Mm. Ten, the direction of the tear, whether it was torn in an upwards motion or a downwards motion. Mm-hmm. 11, whether the first penman was left or right-handed. 
12, whether the second penman was left or right-handed. Mm. 13. And assumedly, they were the same because otherwise he probably would have pointed that out as one of his irrefutable bits of proof that this was two different people. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But also you'd expect, because he's talking about how there's a hereditary in the handwriting. Uh, right. Yeah. 13, the type of pen used. 14, whether or not both penmen used the same pen. <laughs> 15, whether the fragment came from a corner of a standard sheet or was otherwise cut from a larger piece of paper. 16, <laughs> the original use of the paper, whether it was note paper, wrapping paper, or other. 17, the presence or absence of, erasure, of erasure, erasures. Mm -hmm. 18, the evidence or lack of evidence that the writing had been blotted after the first writing. 19, the evidence or lack of evidence that the writing had been blotted after the second writing. 20, whether or not both penmen had used identical ink. There we go. We got that mm -hmm. one there. 21, the presence or absence of fingernail marks made by the hand which tore the paper. 22, any evidence of a scent still clinging to the paper. 23, the presence or absence of extraneous marks or stains on the paper. 23 further deductions made by Holmes about the paper. Some of which you can, you can actually see there's some re relevance there, you know, like mm -hmm. the class of the person is somewhat determined by the quality of the paper and maybe like even w whether it was local or foreign or whatever, blah, 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 you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. but you know, somebody put in a lot of effort to explain away something that Conan Doyle just probably just wrote off right. the cuff to, to make Holmes sound a little bit smarter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, because because we because Holmes needed to sound even smarter. Mm -hmm. See, but that's what fans do. Yes, that's true. Yeah. That's true. It enriches the material, yeah. as they say. Well, it has been a joy to have you, Anders, and it will be a joy mm -hmm. to have you again, which I'm sure we will do. Excellent. It has been a joy to be part of all this. Yes. Well, Tony, it's been excellent having a conversation with you. Yes, indeed. And we will talk to all of our, you listeners again in our next episode, <gasps> The Adventure of the Stockbrokers, Clark. Ah. Mm.